Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. All right, folks, we are live. This is episode 51. Uh, I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park. And tonight our guest is Neil Hansen. Neil is a uh, former Air America pilot. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Air America was essentially the CIA's uh, covert air force or, or airline uh, during uh, the Vietnam conflict. They were, flew all over Southeast Asia. Um, and Neil will tell us all about that. Um, his book is called Flight. Uh, if you guys are interested in that, the, or you're interested in what we're talking about tonight, there's actually a link down in the description of this video that you can go and check it out. So Neil, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Dave, you, uh, you read the book, Flight. So where, where would you like to start with Mr. Hansen tonight? Well, I think we need to start uh, where everybody starts with their origin story because uh, Neil, or would you, rather, would you rather go by weird? Um, either one, either one. <laughs> you know, uh, weird, uh, his backstory is almost as interesting as uh, his time with Air America. So, we, I mean, just tell us, how did you come to, how did you come to flying? Because you were very young when you first got your... Yes, I was. Uh, a, airplanes fascinated me as a child. And uh, back in the days where you'd buy a a little kit and it had blocks of balls in it and you'd carve them out into the shape of the airplane. And uh, that was uh, very crude, but it was a good learning process too. Uh, when I finally moved down to Detroit, my mother remarried, I was in a rural area where we had no electricity, no telephone, and uh, a two mile walk to school, which they'd put you in jail for today if you tried to do it. <laughs> But uh, Detroit was a learning process, and Detroit City Airport was my spawning ground for the aviation industry. And I'd go out to the airport, hang around, wash airplanes, and I could make pretty good money doing that. That was back still the remnants of the World War II uh, uh, GI Bill stuff that, where they had a lot of flight schools. And I could wash three airplanes an hour uh, and get $5 a piece for them. 
which was big money back in those days. That was 15 <laughs> bucks. And a little extra money if the guy happened to barf in the back. <laughs> but uh, that fueled my uh, uh, funding for learning how to fly. And it also eventually funded me uh, to buy a small airplane back in 1953. And it was uh, Cessna 140 for $1,300. And wow. how old were you at the time? Uh, that by the time I bought the airplane, I was 16, 17 years old. Wow. But uh, I'd already soloed and everything else. In fact, I even had my commercial pilot's license before I graduated from high school or had a car uh, a license to drive a car. <laughs> so it was quite a trip. Were things, I mean, were things just so much different back then where things, doing something like that was, was more within the reach of the common person? Yes, it's totally out of the reach of the young uh, guys that are interested and girls that are interested in getting into aviation. They've got chain link fences up and security guards and everything else. Back then, you could go out to the airport and hang out, talk to pilots, and bum rides and things like that. Uh, now you can't go out and even touch a little airplane. It's a, it's a shame, and it's basically destroying aviation as we know it in America. And uh, I hope it comes back. But my uh, licenses and everything else morphed into different things and flight instructing and building hours that way, flying charter uh, and all of those uh, various sundry uh, duties you had. In fact, back then, I was so addicted to it. I worked three years without a day off. And uh, I was hooked. Before uh, the whole turmoil came into Southeast Asia, uh, I was flying for the Teamsters Union for Mr. Hoffa. And uh, some of our overnight trips would last for months, and particularly during the trial down in Chattanooga. Great guy to work for. Uh, insisted you call home every night. Uh, and he worked 18 to 20 hours a day. But wow. eventually the uh, feds were catching up with him. Yeah. And uh, he was going to go on a federal vacation. And uh, I knew it was time to look for another job. So in one of the stops down in uh, Washington, D.C., when I was in the offices there, I saw an ad in the Washington Post for pilots in Southeast Asia. So I contacted them and they sent me an application. And, yeah, this sounded like a good deal. Uh, this uh, would take me out of the line of fire and into a new realm. And I've always been curious about doing things different, which uh, is good for you <laughs> sometimes. But uh, <laughs> uh, got an application back, filled it out. And uh, it sat there for a while and uh, it didn't get any answer. And I called him and he answered me, we're not hiring right now. Well, I thought that's a dead horse. Three days later, I was in uh, Meg's in Chicago, the lakefront airport that's no more, and waiting for the attorneys to come back to the airport and got a call to come to the airport manager's office. And uh, I thought it was them saying you're going to be late. But no, it was a Mr. H.H. Dawson from Air America. And uh, he uh, said, uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions. <laughs> And uh, I'm just kind of curious on how he knew I was there because we never filed flight plans if we didn't have to. We just went incognito from various places 
<laughs> and uh, if you'd file a flight plan, you'd file it for a fake destination because you knew the feds were going to be running right after you. <laughs> and uh, uh, he says, uh, can you fly good? <laughs> Holy shit. This is not sounding very good. And I says, yeah, I can do pretty good. And uh, he says, do you drink a lot? And I thought, well, maybe this is a prerequisite for the job. <laughs> and I said, no. And uh, he says, uh, can you leave in 10 days? I said, no, I don't have a passport or anything. And I want to give the employer notice. And so uh, back to Detroit and down to get a passport in the federal building. And they said it'd take uh, about a month to get a passport. And I said, I've got a job overseas I'm supposed to report to in the next two weeks. And uh, they said, who with? I said, Air America. I had the passport in four days. <laughs> it was an indication that something funny was going on. And did you know who Air America was at this time? No, I didn't. The only thing I'd heard once before was a guy that came out to the airport and claimed he'd been over there and uh, had some pretty tall tales, but uh, I thought I'd give him a call and see what all this is about. Because I looked in the airline guide and it only listed two airplanes, a C-46 and a DC-6 uh, as part of their fleet. Well, I called his house and his mother answered and I asked to talk to him and she said, I'm sorry, but he committed suicide. Oh. So I knew something was wild there. So I got delving further into this sort of thing. And one of the attorneys on board the airplane on the way back from Chicago asked me where I was going to go to work. And I told him Air America. He says, oh, yeah, that's a CIA. <laughs> and of course, he had uh, all kinds of visions of Terry and the Pirates and all of us, that sort of thing. And the James Bond novels that were coming out at the time. And it's all far from the real action, though. But uh, I looked up a lot more on that thing and found out that Air America was part of a conglomerate of holding companies by the Pacific Holding Corporation out of Delaware. It had Air America, Air Asia, Civil Air Transport, Arizona Helicopters, and a couple other things hidden in there. And the Delaware Holding Corporation was wholly owned uh, Pacific Corporation by the agency. And delving further back into it, uh, General Chenault, when, after World War II, stayed in China because he'd married a Chinese gal and uh, formed an airline there. But as Mao Zedong came into power, he chased him out of the mainland and went to Formosa. Uh, this is after the World War II and the OSS and the newly emerging CIA was looking for contacts and places overseas where they could operate. Well, this fit the bill perfectly for them. So they bought into it in 1952 and uh, were a secret holding corporation of the whole thing and funded it. And then it went onward and upward from that point. And as the Vietnam conflict came about, uh, it got crazier and crazier, but before that, our first fatality down there was with a French C-119. They had cat pilots flying these C-119s, airdropping at Den Bien Phu. And uh, James 
uh, McGovern and Wallace Buford got shot down and they crashed in Laos. The remains are what fragments there were, just came back just a few years ago. But uh, that was basically our first fatality. So Dave, that, that reminds us of the interview we did with a former French foreign legionnaire who definitely was not there, a younger guy. But he mentioned the Americans provided some support towards the end of the battle, I believe. That's right. And the crazy part about it, all the fire bases the French had there in the valley, which is not a clever place to be, when the enemies on the, the high ground with artillery uh, were named after the French general's mistresses. <laughs> the only supply they had was the airdropping of the munitions into their sights. The loadmaster on that 119 that crashed in Laos survived. And he was a Frenchman. And uh, he was uh, in France up till about a few years ago. And I don't know if he's still alive or not. But it was a Wild West type existence back then. Uh, my escapades there started off, of course, with the matriculation into the company in Taipei, and everything was Chinese. Uh, we had Chinese doctors, we had uh, Chinese registered airplanes, uh, and since I was there as a pilot, I needed a Chinese license. And so you went to Chinese license ground school. And uh, it's something that's not a poo-poo, it's, it's a valid test, but it also involves testing on Chinese history, which uh, I had, a little help with that. Uh, while I was staying there in Taipei, the one uh, gal behind the desk, uh, she wanted to show me the town. And uh, I, I went into the Chinese operas and the rest of that sort of thing and, uh, and enjoyed the, the good life there in Taipei. And, but I asked her, you know, why is nobody passing these tests? And she says, you don't speak uh, Chinese and you don't show respect. You have no face. And I said, well, how do I do that? And she says, when you go into the examiner, go right up to his desk, take the test with both hands, which shows respect for the papers you're receiving. Don't sit in the back of the room, sit right in front of him. And when you finish the test, hand it back with both hands. And it worked. And I passed the Chinese airline transport rating test. <laughs> Weird. You you mentioned uh, you know you have no face, and I think a lot of Americans don't really understand what face means and, and what a face culture is because you see that a lot in Asia, but we really don't get it here in the U.S. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, face is the the respect of your fellow person there, whether it's male, female, or what it may be, and their culture. Um, we don't respect culture as a, a group in America, in the world. Uh, we think we've got the only way, the right way. And that's not true. There's many other cultures that have little nuances that are better than ours. And uh, it's uh, uh, being part of their culture and their, their uh, respect of each other. Uh, we need more of that here, actually. So uh, we're so fragmented right now. And there's also like a sense of propriety. Like if you're in a face culture, like you don't make a scene in public. It's, nope. it's a big shame to, to do something like that, to draw attention 
to yourself in that way, right? Exactly. Yes. You don't do that. You don't mistreat somebody in front of other people and the rest of that. It's uh, uh, you lose face when you do that sort of thing. And we were bad about that because a lot of them uh, didn't want to eat the local cuisine. Uh, I immersed myself in that thing. I said, I'm going to be over here. I better learn how to eat their food because uh, just for survival uh, is a good thing. A lot of people, uh, every day they have a, a meal of unborn embryos, burnt grain and uh, belly slicing from an animal. And that's the common breakfast of bacon, eggs and toast. But it depends right. how you look at those things. Right. Yeah. yeah, the braised pigeon and all the rest of that and grasshoppers. Yeah, they're okay. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a way of looking at things. So because of this, um, this uh, young lady's help uh, and, and advice, you actually got a license that, that other um, Air America pilots had not been able to attain. They, they'd gotten like a basic operator's license but you got something a level higher. They even told you don't try for this because nobody gets it, right? That's right. Yeah, they said you shouldn't do that. Well, I have a stubborn streak of some sort. And I figured if I do it the way that they say, this lady said it would be uh, uh, appropriate and not disrespect them nor the test, uh, it would work and it did. And uh, Regrettably, I did not go down into Southeast Asia right after that. I went back up to Tachikawa, Japan, and flew DC-6s out of there for Southern Air Transport Pacific Division, which is another part of this big conglomerate. But on occasion, we'd land the airplane in Okinawa, tow it over to the other side of the field, and they'd strip all the markings of it. No bars and stars. No end numbers, nothing to identify it as an American aircraft. And we come out at two o'clock in the morning, leave all our identification in operations and get in that airplane and fly it 10 hours down into Southeast Asia. No radio contact the whole time. Fly 500 feet off normal airline altitudes, busting right through the airways and uh, unload the stuff down there, refuel, and come back the same way. Once you're about 50 miles outside of Kadena and Okinawa, give them a call and they just simply clear you to land. They tow it back over to the other side and paint everything back on it, just like it was normal. <laughs> and uh, how, how long were you in, um, in Japan? I was only there for about six months. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. And since I had my airline transport rating test 
uh, written test for Chinese uh, license done. And I also had the written test for my FAA license, uh, airline transport. And I bugged them up there to get the FAA examiner in Tokyo, come down and would do a flight. <clears throat> and I'd get my uh, ticket and uh, finally did. And I passed that and I went into operations and said, I just wanna send the thing to the first, uh, the uh, chief pilot and uh, tell him I need to go to Southeast Asia, which I did. Uh, my family at that time was not too keen about that. <laughs> it ended up that way. Not could, too keen. Could, could, they were with you, right? Oh, yes. Neil, could you explain just for the uninitiated then, like, what was Air America? Because you explained how it was a front company for the CIA through these various or various holding companies out of Delaware. But like, what were you flying? Where were you going? What, what were, I mean, what, what was this, this network um, that existed across the Pacific? Well, the, the Southern Air Transport Pacific Division, of course, in, in, was flying stars and stripes and troops to, from uh, Japan, Okinawa, Philippines, Bangkok, Saigon, uh, and that route. And uh, Air America itself, was down in Southeast Asia. And it flew rice, munitions, bodies, everything. Was it up to FAA specs? No, <laughs> not at all. Uh, we operated differently down there. Whatever the distance was that it took to get off the ground was the strip's length that you needed. That doesn't mean it was safe. In multi-engine airplanes, there's a speed called VMC, velocity minimum control. If you lose an engine below that speed, you can't fly it. It's gonna roll over and crash. Uh, we did come off below VMC. We had a long gray area there before you had enough speed where you could comfortably lose an engine and make it on out of there. And I would always impress on everybody, engine failures happen when you change power. Same thing in the cars too. Uh, so once you start rolling down the runway and you get off the ground, don't touch those throttles until you've got someplace figured out that you can survive and you have speed. And then you can go ahead and pull the power back to climb power. Otherwise, just leave the throttles alone, as that's where you're going to get killed if you start fooling with that stuff. But, uh, there, there's cautions in the operating manual. Don't leave max power on for more than two or three minutes. And bullshit. I'm going to leave it on for as long as that takes to make sure I'm going to live. <laughs> you know, um, just kind of, I can't really read the chat while we're talking, but just looking at it. There, there's been a couple questions about the flying tigers and, and uh, civil air transport. Can, can we rewind real quick and just talk about what happened in, in China with Japan during World War II and, and how, how we even got there and sort of the history leading up to America, or America? Well, they got to the flying tigers thing through the Chinese government requesting from the American government for assistance. Is the Chinese, the Japanese came through 
uh, China uh, eating up their property just as fast as they could. Uh, FDR, Theodore Roosevelt, he uh, authorized the release of 100 P-40s to the Chinese nationalist government and allowed uh, pilots from the military to resign from the military and go to China to fly them. And they flew those on a per kill basis. Uh, it was pretty darn good, actually. Uh, it was, a, uh, they could make six, $7,000 a month, which is big money back then. Uh, and the P-40 wasn't a great fighter airplane, but it was good enough for the jet to try to shoot down Japanese airplanes. After World War II, or as the military, we did join the, the uh, conflict, these guys were absorbed into the military. General Chenault stayed there. He became a general until the end of the war. And then since he'd married a Chinese gal, he saw an opportunity to start an airline in mainland China because their transportation was awful there. And uh, he did, called CNAC. And the communist forces slowly began getting power and forced them to escape to Formosa, which is now Taiwan, and established a base there. And that's where I mentioned that the agency came in with funding and everything else. The uh, maintenance facility we had there was an authorized inspect and repair as necessary uh, in Tainan, the southern part of Formosa. It was a huge facility, 30 foot high metal fences or walls around it so people could not look in. And it was staffed by all Chinese mechanics. And most of these mechanics had uh, FAA, airline transport or uh, air frame and, and power plant licenses. And they were not making an awful lot of money. They were making like 75 cents a day. If the guy had an FAA inspector's license, he got a dollar and a quarter, <laughs> which is, Ridiculous, but they did magnificent work. Their work on aircraft that would come up there on our helio carriers, all you needed to get out of the crash site was a data plate. You'd send that in an envelope up to Tainan, they'd build an airplane around it. Helio courier got rather upset over that, claiming that we were manufacturing airplanes without uh, permission from the, uh, them. But the data plate was a cover and they could do that. They rebuilt helio couriers, they rebuilt twin beaches, uh, just about everything you can imagine. They even rebuilt a 727 wing that got blown off. <laughs> that, that's amazing. I mean, it, it's amazing what, uh, uh, what, what the ingenuity and, and local resources can do. That's right. And if they did not have the part, they'd build a wooden frame that fit the, the specs for it and take a sheet of aluminum and beat it into shape. And it would look magnificent. <laughs> so, okay, so you leave Japan, right? And, and, and you wanted to go to South, Southeast Asia, right? You, yes, I did. And what was it about Southeast Asia um, and this is 
kind of before a lot of our involvement, before the big buildup for us, what was it about that that attracted you? Because well, you had a cushy job, right? You had a good job. Yeah, it's a good job, but I have the urge to walk on a wild side. And that was really where you could walk on a wild side. You were allowed to take the airplane to its limits and beyond. And uh, I was on the line as a captain and about four or five days after I got there. A month after that, they made me an instructor pilot, checking out new guys. And a couple months after that, they made me assistant manager of flying, checking out all the new guys and in charge of the C-46 program, uh, the Twin Beach program. I had the Dornier 28, a German airplane, and even a little Piper Apache. And so I was awash with characters there. Definitely. Some hee-haw type, some not so hee-haw. They punch you in the mouth just for nothing. <laughs> and, uh, it was uh, my kind of envelope. It, yeah. uh, it really was where I wanted to be. And you worked seven days a week and you had a radio by your bed to wake you up in the middle of the night in case something went south and you'd have to get out there and clean it up. So where was your first assignment then after Japan? Where did you go first? I went to uh, Saigon. To Saigon. Yeah. When did you pick up the nickname Weird? I think because of my willingness to do the unusual and uh, sometimes unusual things. My checkouts were hell on wheels <laughs> and uh, my washout rate was god awful too. But I didn't have any fatalities in the programs I was supervising. Right. So even though the head shed may have been a little upset over my methods, uh, they, they couldn't argue with me because I was being effective. That was a big thing. Now, for anybody who has not read the book yet, uh, and I highly recommend you do, I, I think that you know, just saying that your checkouts were a little intense or whatever, it, it, it isn't really paying uh, honest tribute to some of the things that you would do to these new Air America pilots, um, you, to me, reading it, it seemed like there were times you were putting your own life in jeopardy. Obviously, you probably didn't think that, but you I would never put it into a, a situation that I couldn't get them out of. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But I did put them in extreme situations. Uh, here, if you give a check ride, they don't compound emergencies. But if you look at accident records, it's never one thing that killed a guy. It was a combination of things. That's why I would compound emergencies and be very radical in doing that. Yeah. But it gave me, the, if the guy would try to recover from the situation I was putting in, even if it was wrong, that's better than the guy that would sit there terrified and do nothing. 
I wanted people that would do something. If they're not going to do anything, I don't want you. You're going to go home. Um, one of the stories you tell, because you tell a couple stories about check rides in the book, and one of them you talk about a guy who you're. I think you're giving two or three different pilot, three different pilots check rides, and mm-hmm. one guy's kind of nervous on his first flight. Then his confidence gets up. And he actually says, I can help you develop more a training yeah. program. Can you tell us a little bit about the check ride you gave him? <laughs> yes, he was one of those guys. He was ex-Air Force, actually. And uh, he became very confident. Uh, I saw him in the briefing before we got into the airplane. He was scared. And once he got in the airplane, he thought he was better than he actually was. In cases like that, you really want to make the guy look a fool. When he started saying that he's going to help me write the manuals and do this, no, no, you you not just dug yourself a grave. <laughs> and uh, of course, I I made him look the fool, and all the other guys sitting back in the cabin could see what I was doing. And this, of course, he finally the light came on, and he knew what I'd done. And uh, made an enemy, but I wasn't there looking for friends in the cockpit. I was looking for guys who could fly. And uh, if that hurt his ego, so be it. But he didn't quit, and he continued on, and he he did come up to snuff. So one pilot in there, and he was one of the best pilots I've ever met in my life, Roger. He uh, was not the guy that you'd imagine as a a pilot, but he was great. And he really reveled in the uh, out of the box type stuff we were doing. And he could fly an airplane. There's only one other pilot or two other pilots, David Pan, a Chinese pilot, I had in the C-46 program and Bill Pruner, who I lost uh, due to ground fire. But, uh, he was also a, a good pilot, and I'd known him from here in the States uh, when I was flying for the Teamsters. He was flying for Cummings Diesel, and we'd run across each other in pilot's lounges, and he was a real pleasure. But uh, Scott running down to a strip down in the Delta in Vietnam, and uh, he got stitched up with a 50 on the bank of the, the, the uh, canal. And uh, managed to put it down in a rice paddy. That uh, man, I thought we got this made. You know, usually your first hour is your survivability. After an hour, you usually got a problem. And uh, had choppers on the way in there. And when they pulled up alongside the airplane, the bad guys were in there and uh, shot up one of our choppers, an Air America chopper. And the co pilot had a bullet round through his hand. I finally got gunships over there and uh, got the bodies out, and he was my friend. That was a hard one. Yeah. There are a couple things, uh, and we'll get into in, in the in your book, and I mean in your life that happened before before anybody really understood what post traumatic stress was, and you know, what was going on emotionally. Um, do you, do you feel like some of the things would happen? Cause you talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know if it was that, you know, I, I think it was more after your crash, but sitting on the tailgate 
or sitting on the, you know, the edge of, of the plane. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel as though those things sort of compounded and there was no way to release it or no real understanding of what was going on internally for you? Yes, you get into that syndrome. Uh, and I, I don't think you ever get rid of it. I don't think there's a, a magic uh, potion or system to do that. Uh, you compartmentalize it and you uh, put a little bottle in the back of your head. And uh, it's deadly stuff in there. And if the cork comes out, it can kill you. And it's killed several people that way. I, I've met uh, uh, several instances where that did happen. One in Saigon where uh, another friend of mine got uh, killed by the uh, customer in the back. He always had a Swedish K and he'd cock it before landing. But I think he let the bolt slip and it went off and it killed everybody. He cried short of the strip. But, uh, yeah, that happens, and uh, you've got to be aware of it and and live with it. In some ways, it's kind of a drug. It uh, it uh, fuels you in many ways, and if it doesn't, it's going to destroy you. Yeah. So, what was a typical day, or or was there a typical day for you when you were in Saigon? No, no typical day really. Uh, Having all of those programs uh, on my back kept me pretty damn busy. Mm -hmm. And also a radio by your bed so they can call you out any time of the day or night, which would not make uh, home life too happy either. Right. <laughs> Some of these, what they called black flights, were crazy. Uh, one that went bad for me was... Uh, uh, one where I got called into the chief pilot's office and uh, he said, we have a black flight to run uh, an agent out of the embassy here in Saigon over to Thailand. We don't want you to look at him. We want you to file a flight plan and don't worry about this. When you go into Tak Lee, you divert from Bangkok. It's all laid on by the embassy. Well, boy. Uh, <laughs> Finally got into the airplane and didn't look at him. He had an embassy escort with him who came up to the cockpit, closed the door. Uh, thank God, because I'd been sitting there for about a half an hour and the cockpit temperature was over 130 degrees. Finally got it cranked up and went on over. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. As I got closer to Bangkok, I told them I'm diverting to my alternate. And they rogered that and went to Tak Lee, which is Royal Thai Air Force Base. And we had a, a place there that we used to do some spooky stuff out of and uh, landed and got him out and he got into another curtained embassy car and whisked away but on the way out the uh, Thai military fell in on me and uh, uh, stopped this whole thing so I spent uh, uh, about a week or so there uh, under house arrest more or less 
And uh, when in trouble like that, it pays to get very, very stupid. And uh, I was lost. I was not a Saigon, but I got lost. And finally, <laughs> they, somebody got to him and they bought it and let me go back to Saigon. <laughs> uh, um, I'm sorry. There's a C-46 thing out of there too, to Hong Kong. That was another middle of the night thing. And normally in the C-46s, we had American captain, Chinese co-pilot, balancing of yin and yang, and uh, called me out at two o'clock in the morning, sent an embassy car by after curfew with guards in a Jeep and brought me out to the airport and I picked up another American on the way out, destroyed his night of sleep. And uh, embassy guys there, the C-46 is a large cargo airplane. And you've got about a 30 foot walk from where you get into the thing in the side uh, door uh, up through the cabin to the cockpit. Well, he took me aside and he says, don't tell your co-pilot, but we want you to go from here to Hong Kong nonstop. Do not talk to anybody and uh, don't look at the cargo. Jeez, oh, I gotta walk right by this stuff. And uh, got uh, in the airplane and uh, walked up the cockpit and it's all munitions, hand grenades, tear gas, small arms ammunition. Hong Kong is hell on wheels and that sort of stuff when the British had control of Hong Kong. So get into the cockpit, cranked up, went radio silence all the way up. He says, once you get within about 50 miles of Hong Kong, give them a call and they'll clear you to land. And oh boy, uh, if they don't, I don't have enough juice to go anywhere except ditch the bird or go ahead and land and face the music. Uh, oh, they called him, they cleared me to land. Wow. Uh, pulled up onto the ramp right in front of the main terminal and uh, shut her down. And here came a police truck out from the side of the building. And oh boy, uh, this is probably not going to be pretty. Now they pulled up and said, how are you doing, Mike? And I said, pretty good. And uh, open it up for us. <laughs> I did. And they scrambled in and they started offloading this stuff. Found out later there's rioting in Hong Kong at that time. They needed the tear gas and small arms stuff. <laughs> Rayfield went back the same way. That was a good one. But sometimes they're not. <laughs> yeah. So would you, you were running the Air America at the time, the rice and munitions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a big myth. Um, uh, Oh, uh, here's a picture. Is, uh, is this, what time frame is this? Oh, that'd be about 69, 70. Long time ago, before wrinkles. <laughs> I don't know why they invented those things. So there's Just this. I got my wings on. Uh, one I've got on right now is my chief pilot wings. And above those wings is a small Buddha. And I always wore that in Laos. In, in Laos, uh, when when did you leave Vietnam did, uh, for Laos? Sixty nine. In sixty nine. 
so whether it was uh, Vietnam or Laos or any place else, you know, there was this big, or now currently, there's this big idea, this big myth, uh, folklore around Air America and how they were running drugs and the CIA was making all this money off the drug trade. Um, and we know that you are not shy about talking about drugs as, you know, drug running as we'll get into later. Uh, but what was your experience with that? And what, you know, Drugs were in Laos. There was no laws against drugs. Primarily, it was controlled by other factors, uh, mainly uh, taking stuff to as far as Marseille. And they had a couple airplanes there that would go and airdrop the stuff into freighters out in the Gulf of Siam. Uh, we no doubt had some sticky bricks on board at one time or another because we're shuttling people and troops all over the country. But that was not our trade. We, we did not have anything to do with that. There was one instance of heroin coming into Vietnam in one of our airplanes in the tail wheel. Uh, you know, several people got fired over that, but I don't think it was an agency operation. I don't, I'm positive it wasn't. And uh, because there was no point in it, it, it just was crazy. Uh, there was enough homegrown stuff here uh, to satisfy the people in country. And there still is. And uh, of course, I think the majority of it's coming out of Mexico now and uh, uh, the Mideast too. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so what, so you wouldn't just like load things on your planes though. I mean, there were a number of times where you would make multiple trips in a day, right? You'd hop from one location to the next, to the next. Um, how would you like know if, if there were hostile troops in the area, like how would you plan your drops or your landings? Um, like how, how did you figure all this out? You had, we had a, what they called a flight information center and the flight information center would have relatively up-to-date information on big gun locations and who's friendly and who's unfriendly. Our uh, site maps or our site books had all the unfriendly ones listed in there. But that wasn't the case that all the time. Sometimes they would fall and you didn't know about it. So airdropping, they'd have to put out a panels uh, with a letter like Lima Lima, LL or uh, whatever the site uh, designation was for that time. And if that came out, yeah, you could go ahead and drop. But you also had other clues that you were looking for. If you're seeing kids out and dogs and things running around in the little village nearby, that's a good sign that the bad guys are not there. Uh, it had been violated several times and people died over it. Uh, overall in uh, Laos, we lost a lot of guys over the whole thing. 240 of us died. None of us are on the wall. And there's a wall in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, that uh, the people of ours uh, that got killed in Laos and the Continental Air Service guys, they, they, their names are on that wall. Well, that, why is that, Neil? How come, how come you're not on the CIA's memorial wall, the, the guys who were, they were agency contractors that died with Air America? Uh, there is a plaque in there, but how often have you been in the uh, Langley uh, building? They, they won't let me in. <laughs> I know. 
That, that's why it should be a public recognition. And the Hmong that built this memorial in Sheboygan, they funded it, no government funding involved. And they did it to honor the Lao, the Hmong, the Americans that died in Laos. And they did a magnificent job, black marble. And it's a, a wonderful tribute and an honor since it came from the Hmong and the people who were supporting in Laos. And they even got my name with a special guerrilla unit <laughs> wall, but I'm not dead yet. So um, were there any instances, in, was, was it uh, Vietnam or Laos where the, the Americans decided to uh, replace rice with bulgur? That was Vietnam, and oh my God, that was such a debacle. It was crazy. Uh, some dietitian or lobbyist in Washington decided this would be a good thing, possibly influenced by the Wheat Growers Association. And we got this bulgur. Uh, it, it is good food. I know we used to use it slop hogs when I was a kid, and then you'd wash it to get the chaff out, and uh, it was porridge. You know, it was, it was pretty good eating, actually, with a little... Uh, maple syrup on it, something like that. But the Vietnamese thought it tasted like shit. They'd been living on rice their whole life for thousands of years. And now a crazy American gonna make them change their diet? No way, Jose, that's not happening. Uh, they didn't wanna offload the airplanes and we'd had 16,000 pounds of this stuff on a 46. And uh, when they would offload, they just throw it in the ditches nearby. And that caused flooding during the rainy season. But that was another big debacle. Another one that was really great after Tet down at Canto in the Delta area, a hundred tons of emergency wartime supplies came in and C-130s. It was real fresh chocolate milk. And that was another one that the locals didn't want because it gave them diarrhea. <laughs> and I had cases of that stuff around the house for a long time. It was pretty good. Uh, who were uh, like in Saigon in that area? Who were some other guys that you worked with? I know that you talk about you know this colorful roster of of characters. Can you mm -hmm. tell us about some of those guys? Yes, you're going to find individuals who want to come over to a war zone and fly. It it wasn't truthfully because of the pay. Uh, our pay originally was $750 a month for a co-pilot and $1,050 a month for a captain. Uh, you could enhance that pay by hazard duty pay or P pay as we call it, project pay. Uh, and it was $5 an hour for a co-pilot and $10 an hour for a captain. So that came about the term of the $5 terms. After takeoff, when you're really right in the area where ground fire could get you small arms, you always made your turns to the right. Copilot sits on the right. The bullet had come through him to get to you. And was not really one of the popular things to do with the copilots. <laughs> but it's called a $5 turn because that's what he was getting paid, so. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna be the one that's a fatality. And there were crazy bullet episodes, particularly in Laos. Uh, one of our Volpars was coming down uh, uh, south, uh, north of uh, 
the uh, uh, 20 alternate in the south of the PDJ. And one round came through the cockpit window, hit him right in the temple and killed him. Luckily, there was another pilot in the right seat and flew it back. Uh, another one, the chopper pilot we lost, uh, he just flared out and landed in a pad uh, on the north uh, east section of Laos. And the guy just stepped out of the bushes, and nailed him right in the forehead. But uh, there was crazy stuff like that. Would you, you know, go ahead? Uh, in Air America, I mean, it, it was an airline. I'm just curious if, uh, in addition to logistics, if you guys had anything to do with like inserting uh, paramilitary teams. I, I was just interested if you had ever crossed paths with, uh, you know, like James Parker and George Washington Bacon and some of those other guys who were, you know, some, somewhat famous now paramilitary operatives that were active in Laos. Uh, probably did, but nobody went in there with their real names. Mm -hmm. uh, they were all codenamed. Uh, the station guys were uh, uh, like Gray Fox and Tall Man, Hog, uh, Pollock, uh, uh, Tony Poe. Uh, oh, Tony Poe, it's another big name, yeah. Yeah, which uh, he ended up getting kind of thrown out of Laos and uh, uh, relegated to the uh, training bases down at Wahin and Fitzanaluk. Because Thailand. of the ear necklace stuff. Well, yeah, well, he, he got pretty crude on that, and Tony did drink, uh, to say the <laughs> kindly. But uh, uh, he, he would pay people for ears of enemies, and uh, he didn't uh, get reimbursed for it. And uh, so he went into the embassy with a whole bucket full of rotting ears and dumped it on a secretary's desk. And uh, that was uh, the end of that particular program. That'll and do it. A lot of fallacies in that because sometimes they'd be using the ears from their children. Yeah. 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 Was the situation, because you said you were in Vietnam until 69, then you went to Laos. Was the situation much more dangerous, would you say, in Laos than it was in Vietnam? In one envelope, yes. And your flying was more dangerous, but your living conditions were great. In Vietnam, your living conditions were you know, kind of iffy because uh, there was always sappers wandering through town, chucking a grenade in a bar, stuff like that. In Laos, yeah, we had some watering holes that were just splendid. <laughs> and, uh, and you could really immerse yourself in the local culture. And what, what was that immersion like? What, what was it like for an Air America pilot uh, whether it was in Saigon or Vientiane or, or wherever. Um, I mean, I'm sure that they weren't mostly choir boys. That's right. Yeah, we, we uh, did run rampant on uh, the bars and things there, but Vientiane was good in that respect. There was a couple watering holes there that uh, were magnificent. Uh, the White Rose was a bar, perhaps bordello type. And uh, everybody went there. Uh, there was another one run by a British guy who died over there called the uh, Purple Porpoise. And not so many uh, females of the night there, but uh, uh, a lot of good drinking and uh, playing dice games. But uh, the White Rose were perhaps the most 
famous of the whole bunch. There was another one called Lulu's of the Club Rendezvous, uh, which dealt in uh, something else. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of the American guys had families over there, right? So how did that all kind of mesh with maybe some of the guys just these hardcore partiers, the other ones having families, maybe even the ones having families enjoying the partying? That's right. Uh, well, it was kind of a free fire zone in that respect. Uh, here, of course, the danger of contracting something more than your love to bring home uh, is very high. There it wasn't. Uh, the uh, people there were very clean and uh, uh, careful about that sort of thing. And yes, it did happen. Uh, one, I think, instance that I've got in the book, there was about a fellow that bounced a check in a place and uh, really uh, upset the gal because it took her about two months for the check to go from the French bank back to the States, find out it's a bum and then come back and uh, she got even. <laughs> <laughs> so you spend your time in Vietnam and then you go to Laos and what, what was Laos like for you? For me, it was really uh, the playground that I wanted to be in. Uh, we pretty much had a schedule there that we could abide to and take time off every month to go empty your uh, gonadal stresses and, uh, and go wherever you wanted. Uh, it was much more pleasant and uh, food was great there. Of course, I, I was into the local food. Yeah. Some people didn't. Uh, and uh, they, they would shy away from me if I, I asked him, do you want to go to have something to eat? <laughs> and they wouldn't. But, uh, uh, it, it was a wonderful place. Uh, it's changed immensely uh, since then. And uh, a lot of people don't realize there was a leper colony there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had lepers working in the kitchen in the hotel. And a lot of people think, well, yeah, you're going to find a finger in your soup. That's not true. They, they can arrest that. And it's not that bad, but it does hold stigmatism. Uh -huh. Also, there's a thing called katoys. And that is a hermaphrodite. They uh, don't shave, they uh, grow breasts, and uh, they still have a little bitty uh, <laughs> there that uh, well, is kind of upsetting for some. Uh, I fixed up uh, one guy that used to be a uh, a marine major with one, and he fell in love. And then uh, he found out what he had. <laughs> he never spoke to me again. Practical jokes were uh, kind of a milieu of yours or, or something you enjoyed doing. Um, can you, because you, you, was it the uh, British, because you did something similar in a bar, not, not similar to that, but you played a practical joke in a, in a bar that almost got you um, kicked out. Like, it, was that was that part of the? It was that part of who you had always been, or was that part of you taking it to the limit in this environment? Uh, part of taking it to the limit in that environment. Uh, I know uh, one friend of mine. He was a loadmaster there, uh, Gene Hassenfuss. Who, uh, he was involved in the Nicaragua thing. He was the guy that got shot down. That's right. He lives up just a couple hundred miles away from here. No kidding. Yeah. But uh, 4th of July, my God, 
we better show how these people, uh, how Americans celebrate the 4th of July. So he liberated some M80 firecrackers from the military that they used for training. And uh, we were up in the second floor of the Seta Palace and the red Chinese embassy was right across the road, a big high wall around it. And so we chucked some of those over and hey, let's have fun with this. And uh, like all embassies everywhere in the world, whenever in danger and doubt, run in little circles and scream and shout. And they did that with great flair. <laughs> and uh, uh, Gene and I went back down to the bar and sitting there having a drink and uh, boy, a big six by comes by with a whole bunch of troops in it and guns. Wow, I just wonder what's going on. And soon they come running into the hotel and uh, up the stairs and down to the area where we had been. In the meantime, one of our Porter pilots had come back, or Helio pilots actually, and he was in his room with his wife showering. And they broke the door down and hauled him off, still soggy. <laughs> and, uh, the chief of uh, security for the embassy, uh, gosh, I can't remember his name, came into the bar, looked at Gene and I says, you guys. <laughs> He knew it was us. <laughs> he thought it was really funny as hell. He said, well, I'll get them sprung, but don't worry about it. <laughs> it was a patriotic thing to do. Did he ever find out it was you? Oh, yeah. He knew of who he was, but uh, they never did anything about it. Yeah. Uh, he also bought a male rifle that we brought back from up country. These were crude. Uh, black powder weapons, uh, flintlocks, and... Uh, he, he was playing with the thing in his kitchen. Now, the reason these people sold these nail rifles or mountain yard rifles was because it wouldn't fire. And that was because they put a charge down or two charges down the barrel and it didn't ignite. Well, in his, his air conditioned home, it all dried out. They were sitting in the kitchen clicking this thing and it went off and blew his screen door off. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> there, there was always dangers like that. What was, um, tell us about like the loadmasters and, you know, both in Vietnam and Laos. Because um, you, you really talk up those guys and, and, and really give them a lot of credit for the things that they did. Oh, yes. Yeah, they, they, they had a very difficult job. Uh, they, they're riding around the back of the C-123 or in the C-46. In the 123, they can't see what's, where the airplane's going. Uh, and they've got to wrestle around 1,200 pounds or more uh, pounds of uh, pallets on rollers that can, are willing, uh, ready, willing, and able to pinch off a finger or a foot and uh, ease it back to the edge of the ramp with a 5,000 foot pound uh, uh, cut strap behind it and then crouch down on the floor with a knife. When the captain says drop, cut that thing and it'll wheel right out the back. Well, it sounds easy, but it isn't. In turbulence, it's a son of a gun. Plus one other little relish there is that the enemy gunners on the ground with small arms have never shot skeet or birds. 
So they're normally not leading the airplane far enough. But most of the bullet holes are back where they live. Uh -huh. We had one uh, about ready to call drop and he called, oh, I'm hit, I'm hit. And uh, well, it sounded bad. I aborted and climbed out and sent the co-pilot back and he comes back up the cockpit laughing. Well, I didn't think there was anything funny about that. Uh, and he says, no, he wasn't hit. There's a hydraulic tank behind him. Hydraulic fluid's red and it was spraying onto his back and it was hot and red and he thought he was in dire straits. <laughs> <clears throat> now those guys were operating with, with open backs, with open ramps, uh, with no, no tethers or anything like that. Um, I mean, if you had to take evasive maneuvers, whatever, they were, they're kind of on their own, right? That's right. They had parachutes on. Uh, we lost one without a parachute up around the middle of uh, Laos. Uh, it was up on a, over a cast and saw a hole he could dive down through, so he did. But I put negative Gs in the back, and one guy floated out the back without a shoot on and uh, became a fatality. Now, wearing shoots was a big deal to you, right? The, the, oh, yeah. That was I, kind of a point of contention for some guys because you always demanded that people wear shoots on your, on your bird. That's right. They're, they're not comfortable, no. Right. If you got the straps adjusted properly, it's very uncomfortable. Right. But if you get in trouble, you really don't have time to go down there and adjust the straps and put it on before the thing impacts the dirt. So you better be ready in case you need it. And yeah, I always insisted on that. And of course the load masters are kickers in the back. They always wore them because they were an extremely hazardous area. Uh, Co-pilots didn't enjoy that, but uh, uh, when I got shot down, he was glad he did have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Do you want to talk about? Yeah, so... towards... yeah please. Towards the end of the, the conflict as it was spinning down, uh, it got hotter and hotter as far as the sites we went to. Uh, overall, towards the end, we lost over 50% of our C-123s. Uh, and I had the only crew that came back alive. How, how many birds, I mean, when you say 50%, how many, how many is that? 13. 13. And so how many, we're talking about four crew members per bird. That's right. Yeah, it could be a bad day at Flat Rock. Uh, I was tasked with going down to Pakse in the southern part of Laos. The Ho Chi Minh Trail enters Laos and travels full length on down past Pakse and then on into South Vietnam after a little about through Cambodia. Uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was the lifeblood of the North Vietnamese and the Pathé Lao, or the, uh, the uh, Viet Cong. And they had it well defended. They had radar controlled anti-aircraft weapons and everything like that. Uh, outside of Pakse, there was a high mesa called the Plateau de Boulevards. And uh, up on this mesa, the bad guys had already put in some 37 millimeter anti-aircraft weapons and several other types. We'd lost a uh, caribou down there a uh, week before I went down there and uh, lost a whole crew in the thing. Uh, I was tasked with dropping to two fire bases 
who were sending troops out to harass the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And on the first one, no problem. I got in there and dropped the load right where they had a smoke grenade out in the field. Uh, since the other one was only about 15 miles away, I told the guys, just leave it open in the back. And two tie kickers, Sampop and Buma. And uh, if we get there, we'll just make a one pass deal and go home and drink a beer. And uh, he said, Roger that. And as I came up to that site, a uh, customer on the ground who was on the radio called Big Bird, Big Bird, get out of here, triple A, triple A. Well, AAA is anti-aircraft artillery, and it can come in a number of forms. There were quad 50s, Russian quad 50s, which is a, a 12.7 or 50 caliber four-barrel devil, like a hose. Uh, you had 23 millimeter, which is white hot and is an explosive round. Then you had 37 millimeter and 57 millimeter, which those rounds are red hot and they look like red balls coming up at you. Kind of scary. Uh, initially, they look like they're going slow. As they get closer, boy, do they pick up speed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I poured the coal to it and jinked out of there. And I didn't see anything. But loadmaster in the back said, load of big red balls went by the tail. Well, this is not a good sign. And went back to Foxite and told the customer's area code name uh, for this particular site was Tall Man. And he says, no, there's nothing there. It must have been some small arms out there. I said, no, I'll go tell that to my loadmasters. They'll tell you what they saw. He said, oh, no. Well, if it makes you happy, I'll have them sweep the area. Well, I knew that was probably a lie. But about an hour, he came back and said, no, it's all clear. They didn't find anything out there. I said, well, I'll go back, but I want some high covers, some T-28s, and I want our choppers, Air America choppers, standing by in case I do have a problem. And uh, he would grudgingly relented on that. And I took off and followed the choppers back. They went in and out, no problem. But we'd also heard rumors that they were getting a bounty for big birds. And that, that's probably why they weren't and the choppers went in, all called clear. So I punched it right down to the jungle canopy and told the guys in the back, open her up and get ready for a drop. You're going to hear two things, either drop or abort. And uh, as I hold up to 400 feet, I give the chutes uh, enough altitude to open, they nailed me. Uh, I initially lost ailerons. Those are those funny little wiggly things out there that bank the airplane. Uh, and the uh, yoke went a little slack in my hands. And uh, full right rudder, and she was still rolling the jungle and to the left. So I stopped the roll, I pulled the power all the way off the right side and uh, shoved the prop all the way up so I had a lot of flat plate drag out there. And she rolled back, was down to 90 knots, shaking like hell. That's about stall speed for a loaded airplane. <laughs> and uh, Staggered on out of there and uh, I gave him a mayday call and uh, one of the choppers said, yeah, you're trailing fluids. Well, that means one of the fuel tanks been hit. 700 gallon tank behind each engine in the cell. And uh, they were foamed, so I didn't worry about it blowing up. 
but I could get flame following me up there and it could be kind of scary. And uh, had the co-pilot, he was petrified. Uh, he told him to go back and see what the damage is. And he did and came back up. Said both the ailerons were in the full up position. That's why it wasn't climbing very well, like turning half the wing upside down. And he said, there's big holes in the wing and a horizontal stabilizer looks like a canopy had been in it. And uh, we're trailing fluid and there's tra trailing fuel. And I had a decision to make then either try to get back to Poxay or uh, take a walk in the wild side. And uh, I've, the controllability problem was a bit much and I'd have to go back up eating a couple of 37 millimeter positions. So there was an old Japanese airstrip uh, about 20 miles away, all overgrown. And if I wanted to try to put it in the dirt there or bail out, it was a nice clear area. So I uh, kept climbing and heading for that thing and told the choppers what I was gonna do and have them stand by for a taxi ride back to Poxay and uh, told the co-pilot that we're gonna bail out of this and uh, he was just petrified. And they, the loadmasters, Sampop and Boomer, no, they, they were ex-Thai military and jump qualified. So he went back, about to ring the bell for him to go, and he's back up the ladder into the cockpit. And what the hell do you want? He said he wanted his survival vest. Well, and he left the cockpit and went on the intercom, told Tom Pop, take it away from him and throw it out the goddamn door. As uh, if he tries to put it on, the parachute won't open. Right. He'll be covering up the back of it. Well, they did. And uh, we're ready for another pass. About ready to ring the bell and he's up in the cockpit again. He wanted his camera. It, your bird is very unstable at this point in time. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, you were shaking like hell. Like to make these passes, I mean, because I remember reading it, the detail that you put into the book and to make these passes, like it, it, it was miraculous what you were pulling off with the bird at that point in time. Yeah, it was basically very unstable and uh, uh, it was junk com coming off the thing and the choppers could see this. Uh, and uh, uh, he wanted his camera and that's when, when he grabbed that, I hit him and uh, I think that's the only injury. And he fell back down the ladder. And I didn't worry about the camera. You can't, you can't hang on to it once you exit the airplane. It's going to get ripped out of your hand. And uh, lined it up again. And uh, told Sampop and Nina, come, I don't care what you do, get him out of here. And uh, I rang the bell. Booma, he went first. And when Bill leaned out the troop door, to see the parachute open, Sampop took him out. <laughs> <laughs> and he had reason to be scared. He'd never jumped. I, I'd done skydiving in the United States. And he thought you just come in like you do in the movies and pull like that. Well, that metal conduit, that your cable will get kinked on that thing. And it doesn't pull very easy. You want to grab it and go straight down and strip those pins out of the back. Well, he fell for a ways before he found that out and ruined his underwear. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I exited the stage door 
left or right on this case, the right troop door, and uh, got stable and watched a bird and uh, before I pulled. And uh, she went, uh, oh, about another seven, eight miles away and started clipping off jungle canopy. And then uh, she blew. And uh, I don't know, airplanes to me have a, a life. And it's sad to see them die. Well, I ended up in some low scrub and uh, shucked the chute and uh, waited for a chopper. I could hear him coming. And I had a little clearing there, but it wasn't big enough to land a chopper in. But I could see he was going to try to do that. And he had some branches with his tail rotor and showered me with that crap. And uh, you fall and kill me now, I'm going to really be mad. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he picked back up and dropped the sling, and I rode that up into the, the cabin and uh, uh, took a seat on the far side of the cabin. And, Thai soldier and or Hmong soldier on the other side, bloody arm and a puddle of vomit between his boots. And I can understand where he's coming from. But uh, the tail rotor damage was so bad, we went down on that Japanese strip and shut down. And we all had Uzis in the cabin there and uh, got out of that thing. And Bobby came down from the cockpit, said he called and another chopper's on the way back. Good. And when he showed up, he landed about two or 300 meters away from us. Well, we had to carry the wounded over there. A bunch of crap. You know, what the hell you do that for? He says, well, you guys are in a minefield. <laughs> they couldn't have been very good mines. <laughs> but uh, uh, he, we loaded all the wounded in there and he was full. So there's another chopper going to be coming back for us. Okay. If I would have got picked up with the first chopper and taken back to Poxay, I had a little 38 Derringer in, a, in my leg pocket. And I was going to put that in tall man's nose and pull the trigger. And uh, I was starting to cool down a little bit. Yeah. And waited for the other chopper to come. And uh, he came in, all climbed into that thing and uh, got off the ground there and Doors open, and I gave a one finger salute to the bad guys, and uh, we got to the edge of the plane to Boulevards. He ran out of gas, and we're all rotating down into an area that we know good or bad guys. But as we flared, one of our uh, H-34s with a twin uh, turbine engines in it, and it's S-58T, pulled up alongside, and he still had gun mounts on it. And uh, that was my last ride in, Fox A. But uh, when I walked into the uh, line shack there, tall man was there and I had an Uzi in my hand and he just turned white as paper. And I, I said, uh, who's gonna get the beers? I dropped the clip out of it. And he said, I will, I will. <laughs> Smoked out the door. And uh, Gray Fox, the other customer there, uh, he said, you know, you're probably not going to come back. And I says, that's probably smart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to put something up on the screen. Can you, can you see this? Uh, can you uh, tell us what, what this is? is? Is that coming up? Not here. Yeah, I don't see anything. No. Oh, uh, Jack, you need to enable uh, screen sharing on me. 
Let's see if that works. I see Jack. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Hold on. Is that my lost and damage report? It, it, it is. Um... Uh, I, I can't share it from here, Dave. Um, why don't you just... Uh, wait, there's something. There you go. Okay, you cool. Go. Hold on. Uh, there's a better... How's this? Yeah, 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 we see it. Yep. Yeah, like all government agencies, you got to fill everything out. Ten copies. And uh, I filled all of this out. And stuff I had and... Uh, uh, how I discovered uh, uh, my loss was watching the aircraft impact the ground and explode. And my witnesses were uh, our Hotel 81, Hotel 52, Hotel 53 crews and the enemy. <laughs> and uh, I listed everything I lost in there, but I also included one thing that I used to harass copons with, and that's coloring books and crayons. And I put on my box of 64 crayons and three coloring books. And they paid me for it. Yeah, well, we haven't really talked about that. I mean, that's that's part of what led to, you know, another contributor to the, your nickname, Weird. But let's, how did you harass your, your co-pilots with that? Let's talk about the coloring books and, and crayons for a second. Oh yeah, new guys, they were fresh meat for me. Uh, and, I just wanted to find out in the 123, we had all American co-pilots. And uh, I just wanted to find out whether they could handle the unusual. If they couldn't, then go the hell home. Uh, this is not gonna be uh, a regular scheduled uh, passenger flight from A to B and with stewardesses and everything else. It's gonna be down and dirty. And after takeoff, I pull out a coloring book and crayons, you know, you got it, hold this heading and uh, start coloring. And one of the loadmasters used to come on the intercom, can I color too? Said, yeah, but you gotta stay in the lines this time. And uh, that'd either get them to quit or <laughs> get their attention anyways. <laughs> or on short final, if it alternate, which was a scary approach and, and just start screaming, oh my God, my God. <laughs> and, uh, see if he'd, uh, Ruin his underwear. Hey, hey, Jack, can you take control back? I don't know how to get out of screen sharing now. Yep. There, there you go. go. Oh, yeah. but, but you actually did enjoy coloring though, right? It, it was- oh, Yeah, it's, it's a mindless thing and it's, uh, it's good. And uh, I would not use up the coloring books. I'd, at the end of the day, if I had some uh, pie kickers on board, I'd give them the crayons and the coloring books to take their kids. Yeah. It's it's interesting that you were that that was a form of like relaxation for you at the time because now it's become very popular and adult coloring books yeah. are yeah. The market. Oh really? Yeah, it's 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 a thing that a lot of adults are doing now. I'll be there. Well, I have to go back to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and now you're not limited to sixty four. They've got you know one hundred and twenty eight, and I, oh. I don't even know how many. How many? Uh, They've got some fancy ones, I know. They do. They do. They've been inventing colors since the 60s. Um, so, how, so you started in, um, in uh, Laos in 69. How long were you there for? I was there until Air America quit. And uh, in 73, they, they gave up the ghost and... Uh, uh, 
towards the end, I just wanted to explore a little more of the philosophy of the area. Yeah. And so I joined a Wat as a monk. And a Wat is a temple. That's right. Same as a church, basically. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people think that there's uh, uh, it's a regular organized religion. It is in some places, but it's also a way of, of clearing your brain, too, yeah. through uh, meditation and the rest of that. And Laos is probably one of its purer forms. And, of course, the basic premise that, uh, that it came out of India with was if you lead a good life, you won't come back. They'll never be reincarnated. And because the area back then in, uh, in India was so rough and so hard that to die and go away forever was perhaps a very great uh, desire instead of having to come back and uh, work on a rice paddy and shovel buffalo crap and the rest of that and be half starved to death. Right. So it's, a, it's a very interesting thing. And I love the meditation part of it. And there's a danger too. When you enter into that, the person that leads you can go ahead and lead you down a wrong path. Sure. In Vietnam, some of them let them down to pour a can of gasoline over themselves and light a match. And in actuality, give me your complete confidence and faith in three days and get you to do it through self-hypnosis. And you do it yourself. It's not uh, uh, something that you're, you're, you're doing to them. You're just giving them the path. Right. Well, you're familiar with that too. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah, um, I, I mean, you know, it goes back to kind of the MK Ultra idea and why it failed is it, you can't make somebody do something they're not, that they wouldn't naturally be inclined to do, but if they do have an inclination, that's right. Definitely given the nudges in the right direction to, uh, to do it to go there yeah yeah uh, it, it's a it's been used by not only the buddhist faith but many other faiths too and uh, uh sometimes it hasn't been that great the kool-aid thing down in guyana sure the rest sure. of that david karish and yeah and, and you know buddhism like you look at the history of like, uh, like tibetan buddhism like buddhism is not um innocent of its own sort of organizational sins against its no. own or others or anything else like that that's right you know, it's like any other organization any other party any other you know identity anything policies and competition and everything and sure. every form of that uh and uh for me i was lucky i went into a lot that was really good there was only one in there that uh, felt I was taking his position. What was it like for you being the only American, the only Caucasian, I'm assuming, in a, in a Watt? What was it like for them? Well, I lived with them and I lived, did the same thing. Uh, in the morning, you'd get up and collect your Batsidam, which is a black bowl, and you'd go out barefoot walking through the village begging. And uh, you just walk down the road and people come out and give you a handful of rice or uh, something to eat. And you go back and you do that. Uh, and of course, the basis for meditation, you got to be hungry. You got to have everything shut down. And uh, it, it's a real process and it, it's really good for you in many ways. But it can be used for a bad end too. Sure. 
uh, we've been going for a bit now. I want to, uh, we have a couple of questions and, and maybe um, some other stuff. Uh, Brendan, thank you very much for the donation. Uh, did you ever do any, uh, have anything to do with the Ravens in Laos? And did you ever fly the uh, Helio Courier or the uh, Piatis Porter? Piatis Porter. Piatis Porter? No. Um, I was mainly a big bird pilot and multi-engine pilot. Now, I do know the Ravens. Uh, we did that job before they got there and then turned over the T-28s to the Hmong to fly them. And then the Ravens came into being and uh, they had quite a bit of success. And what were the Ravens? They what were an Air Force. They were military. Okay. They were military uh, advisors, pilots, and the rest of that, they'd go up and uh, uh, help identify targets and uh, fire on them too. Did you well, ever have any problems, uh, you know, with the with? I don't know if you even work with them, but the with military pilots that your way of doing things was quite unorthodox and not quite up to FAA regulations, and the military pilots are like, by the book, everything's got to be done the right way. Well, I did have trouble with that. Most of them I'd send home that couldn't adapt to my way of thinking. Uh, they did not have crew chiefs that were out there pre-flighting the airplane for them, carrying their bags out to the airplane and all the rest of that. If you got up country and you, you were loading cargo, you're going to have to tie it down. There's nobody else going to do it. And if you need to be refueled, you're going to have to climb out on the wing and refuel it. And if it's low on oil in one of the tanks, you're going to have to hoist a five-gallon jerry can full of oil and pour it into the tank. And if you're not willing to do that, I don't need you. I, you can't work here. And what about active duty military? Would, while the war was at its height, did you cross paths with them often or? I did uh, on occasion. Um, the worst part was Vietnam. The army operated on FM frequencies. The Air Force uh, operated on UHF. I don't know what the hell the Navy was on. And uh, we were on VHF because we didn't hear what they were doing. Uh, we had no idea if they were having an airstrike in the area. The rest of that, we had one midair down in Sok Trang in the Delta area of Vietnam with a helicopter and our dornier. And they all walked away, luckily. Wow. In fact, part of that airplane is up here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, one of the wings. And the guy's got it on his door near. <laughs> oh, so they got a little history there. The uh, pilot for that, uh, uh, Victor David, uh, he quit not too long after that and came back to the United States and uh, flew for Frontier Airlines and was a captain there. And he's had a bad end. He was coming out of a restaurant and a car jumped the curb and hit him and killed him. <laughs> after all of that. Yeah, it's amazing. I, yeah, um, Hammer and Nails, uh, thank you very much. Uh, oh, you said going to have to watch the rest of this in the morning. Thanks for the great content. Thank you. Cypher, thank you very much for the donation. Um, Ian Hutchinson, thank you for the donation. Did you ever have to try to hot extract two Kazakh nationals and one American national from Cancun? No, uh, he, he's making he's making a joke about a, a book I wrote. He, he said Jack will get the reference. Yeah, okay. it's a it's a it's a novel. <laughs> okay. Um, um, 
let's see if I can, I can't read all these comments. Uh, can you touch on the, uh, do you know, can you touch on the evolution of Air America into Evergreen Cargo in the 80s? And it's limited. Uh, yeah, Evergreen was part of the uh, mishmash. They're hiding these firms. In fact, there was quite a few of them. Uh, Pan Am was even involved at one time. Uh, there's, it, it was rumored at one time there were over 500 companies that the agency had a piece of the action in America. And some of these companies, the profits from that would fund other operations that they couldn't go to Congress and uh, say, hey, we want uh, to assassinate this guy and we need some bucks for it. Well, Congress is not going to go for that. Uh, perhaps one of the, the biggest ones was uh, in Africa. There was a despotic ruler there that they uh, wanted to off. And so they came up with a plan of poisoned toothpaste. Well, this is great. Except the guy never brushed his teeth. <laughs> so out. Uh, ended up with a, a taxi driver whacked him and left him in a trunk out at the airport. <laughs> wow, where, where was was this Zaire or the Congo? Africa. Mobutu. Ah, okay. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, no fascinating stuff. And, you know, we interviewed on a, 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 we did two episodes actually with Ron Moeller, who was a air branch officer uh, in the war on terror, um, served in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's really interesting to like kind of see, you know, you were on the ground floor making history and then see kind of where it ended up decades oh, later. Yeah. And it didn't end up real good. It's, uh, uh, it's just like the, uh, attempt of uh, extricating the uh, embassy uh, people in Iran. Uh, the groundwork and the road that they were going to land on with the 130s and depart from was done by uh, a couple of our pilots in a Helio Stallion. Mm -hmm. uh, but it got screwed up because somebody got excited and uh, tried to take off and hit the wingtip on the other bird and killed a bunch of people. And so that whole thing was an abort. That was it was a it was a helicopter, yeah, that that crashed into the C-130. But the, the initial flight where it was the CIA pilots was uh, with Major Carney when they did the ground assessment. Uh, yeah, I know who the pilots were, and I won't mention their names. What were they? Were they Air America guys back in the day? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's. Talk about a little bit, if you don't mind, like evacuations, because you had some experience, experiences like in the Plain de Jars, I think, and and maybe a couple other places. As things started to fall apart, um, what were your experiences with evacuations and how they would go down, and how organized were they or were they not? Evacuations were a nightmare on wheels. Uh, the Hmong were very good, but still. Terror overcomes almost everybody in reason. And they'd be storming the airplanes and throwing their children on. Uh, the only thing about the Hmong, they would take care of the women and children first. Whereas in Vietnam, no. The soldiers would be throwing them off the bird. Uh, but uh, there it was chaos, really, and, and heartbreaking in many ways. 
people walking into tail rotors and propellers and things like that. And uh, it was bad. I remember I came out of uh, 20 alternate on an evacuation. Normally there's 60 seats. Well, I took the seats out and just put straps across the floor, I think. I had 154 on board. And what was the what was the capacity or what what were you supposed to have? Sixty. I didn't care about the frills; just get them out of there. And uh, that's big. And during one of those evacuations, uh, I flew twenty-one legs in a four-engine transport in one day. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it would get to the point where I mean, troops would have to, or people would have to, you know unfortunately beat these people to keep them from from trying to get on you'd have to close well the 123 was great because i'd have the the side troop doors closed on the thing and just drop the ramp and when we had all we could take in it we'd have the kickers raise the ramp and uh or the coal tour and go yeah yeah that was all you could do and it was sad it was really and where would you, like with the Mongs or whomever else, where would you fly them to? Where would you evacuate them to? And, and, and what would happen to them once they got there? Uh, sometimes down to Van Bing, which was uh, uh, in the northern, uh, north of uh, Vinchen, a uh, little ways. And then a lot of them were down to Lima site 272, which was on a branch of the river feeding the uh, dam site down there. And they had a laterite strip there that we'd taken into. And there they were going to have to live in the dirt. But at least they got to live. Yeah. I think actually this is probably a good time to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the political situation. Why were these people getting evacuated? Like what, like I think that many Americans don't understand. They, do, they don't know anything about the killing fields anymore. They don't understand, mm-hmm. um, you know, like people poo poo the domino theory, but it actually was a thing and it actually sort of happened in, in a number of ways. So what was happening at, at that time and why were these people evacuating? What, what was going on? Well, they didn't want to fall under the North Vietnamese rule uh, and that and they'd be used as cattle, you know, uh, labor and uh, the rest of that. Uh, yeah, it was a very, very sad time and it was a destruction of a culture. Uh, it's amazing that the Hmong were able to come to America and assimilate as well as they have, which they've done a great job. Nothing is perfect, but they've done a magnificent job since coming to this country and not being able to speak the language or anything else. A friend of mine down in Sheboygan, his brother came back to America from a refugee camp and into Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And a host family picked him up at the airport. He didn't speak any English or anything and drove him off into the countryside. Now he'd heard rumors that Americans were cannibals. And he's out in this farmhouse out in the boondocks and terrified, but they didn't eat him. And he ended up joining the army and becoming a senior master sergeant. Really? Out of the US Army. Did a beautiful job, Shua Vang. And you had already mentioned that the uh, Hmong in, um, is, it, is it Michigan had set up? Uh, uh, okay. 
um, had set up, you know, a, a memorial. So they they recognize and appreciate what had happened and, and what you had done for them. Not you yeah. personally, but you yeah. as an organization. It, is, is that the memorial there, Neil? Uh, that is the one uh, that's in the McDermott Library in Texas. Okay. It's okay. Uh, currently not being displayed. Let me see if I can find the other one, but please continue. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, no, they, they are extremely loyal people and uh, feel bad about abandoning them there. Yeah. And that's what, exactly what happened. Right. And we've seen the the modern day, uh, the Kurds are kind of the modern day, um, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the modern day embodiment of, of that, of, of backing up a, a group that, you know, an indigenous group that helps us and then kind of bailing when our political needs are, are done. You know? Well, we change regimes so often. Yeah. Uh, every four to eight years, uh, our regime totally gets trashed and uh, uh, there's a new sheriff in town. And in some ways, a dictatorship, if it's benevolent, is probably the better form of government. But uh, that'll probably get a call from the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> but frankly, I don't give a damn. <laughs> well, that actually leads us into maybe our next segment about getting calls from the FBI. Um, what happened? Huh? Or Cambodia. Oh, go ahead. Or Cambodia. Uh, I, when I left Laos, I went down to New Zealand and uh, thought I could let it all go. Well, that was wrong. And a friend of mine called me and wanted to know if I'd like to go to Cambodia and fly there. Oh, right. Okay. I said, sure. Let's do that. So I hopped a smoker out of Auckland, uh, New Zealand, up to uh, Singapore, and picked up a Convair 440 uh, there that would, had been with Garuda. The only thing was Garuda had not paid Convair for those airplanes. So they'd been sitting and rotting in the heat down there, and all the seals and engines were questionable. But I took that up to Phnom Penh, and Phnom Penh was uh, something that a nightmare is made out of. Uh, the city itself was surrounded by the Khmer Rouge, and, uh, and I stayed in a place downtown where there was water for about three hours a day, and so you had to collect water. And if you didn't collect water, when you came back in, lift the toilet tank lid and dip the water out of there, and that's okay but it wasn't drinkable. It would give you a severe case of uh, two-step. Two but uh, uh, that Convair ended up losing an engine in uh, Kampung Sam or Batambang and uh, came back to Kim, uh, Penh and caught a ride with an old C-46. And boy, it just shook like hell when I took off out of there. And... Uh, took it down to the coast and was flying out of the coast in Kampong Sam with rice up to various sites and had a Chinese co-pilot and uh, letting down into a site north of Phnom Penh and there was a loud in the back and uh, co-pilot, oh, cargo fall over. 
No, I know what that is. <laughs> I've heard that sound before. And uh, landed there, you know, offloading the cargo, and I walked around it. And about four inches from the main fuel selector valve on the right side, there's a 50 caliber bullet hole out to the top of the wing, through the cabin, and on out the other side. Well, took that thing back down to Complex Om. And when I got on the ground there, it was safe walking around the airplane and thought I'd check this thing out. And uh, ah, everything looked fairly good, just this one hole. And came up to the left side and the left engine and they'd like most pilots do, grab the propeller blade and it moved frontwards and backwards. The whole thing was loose in the hub, ready to come off. That's where my vibration was. Well, that was the end of that airplane. Picked up another Convair down there uh, with Anchor Watt Airlines and began shuttling rice there. And I was in uh, Batambang over by the Thai border. And a friend of mine was on the ramp there. He had a flat nose wheel tire on his airplane, getting it fixed. And I could hear a 50 caliber talking on the perimeter. Well, it was outgoing 50. That's not a good sign. So the bad guys are going to be pretty close. And one of the Cambodian officers came up to me and he says, you know, all American go home. Really? Well, I'm still here. He says, no, they come in with helicopters and take all your embassy and they take our generals and they leave. And all our political people. Wow. Well, I got my friend aside and said, I'm going to go back down to Complex Sound, get a load of fuel, and then tomorrow I'm going to leave for Bangkok with the crew. And I said, why don't you come too? And uh, he says, yeah, I'll, I'll be down there. And I said, well, be down there before noon and we'll leave with the best airplane. But at 12 o'clock, color me gone. He says, well, my wife is in Phnom Penh. I want to go get her. Well, the next day, just uh, dawdled around out to the airport and, uh, and always noodle stands and things around the airport ramps and they started to disappear. That's not a good sign. To the north, there was a road cut through the hill, low hills up there. And if I would have saw dust coming up from that, uh, I would have left early, but nothing. Cambodian military started to leave wouldn't let me ride with them. I had a good idea. They didn't want to be seen with a round eye. And I think they'll probably, their uniforms will be in the closest ditch to the airport. And uh, I had a little bit before 12, well, I told my crew what we're gonna do. They thought that was a great idea. Got the station manager who was there and uh, told him, you come with us to Bangkok. And he said, no, Captain, my family, Phnom Penh. Well, I can't argue with that. I should have. I didn't know what the Holocaust was going to be coming. Yeah. 1.7 to 2 million people killed. And noon, still no friend. So I cranked her up and we left. And on into Bangkok. I didn't have a passport. I had a whole suitcase or a briefcase full of Cambodian money. It's yeah. now worthless. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it looked good. It was green. Now, when you were flying in Cambodia, was that under the auspice of uh, Air America, the CIA? No. Was it completely commercial? That's it, right. It was just somebody who stood up an, a, a, an airline mm-hmm. and got a contract to fly humanitarian aid. No, no. No? Commercial. Commercial. Uh, it was all the old trucking companies that used to haul goods around in Cambodia. Okay. Uh, and then the Khmer Rouge cut all the roads, so they needed a way of hauling their goods. So that fell on our bailiwick. And they bought junk airplanes. Some of them were really bad. One I had this when I escaped out of Cambodia was a real good one. It was a, a real decent airplane. And uh, the only problem was, didn't have an American money, didn't have a passport. <laughs> it was not there. And uh, landed in Bangkok and wow, I scrapped surprised. They had me parked right near the terminal and uh, was reluctant to open the cockpit window. Well, I'll open this and see if the uh, police start out here. Didn't happen. Wow. I had a stewardess, or Stuart, he was Cambodian, and the stewardess was his girlfriend, about 13 or 14 years old. Right. <laughs> Opened the air stair door. Wow, still nothing. So we're all in uniform, looked fairly decent. And uh, told him, okay, you follow me? Do not say anything. Walked into the terminal. All the uh, health check desks were empty, walked right by them. But there's a side office where the immigration people were. And he looked up and saw me and waved me over. And I said, oh boy, uh, now it'll hit the fan. And uh, he says, Captain Manifest, please. I said, oh, I don't have any. You have any blank ones? And I filled out some blank ones, phony names and everything. He stamped him, but I flashed him an old Air America ID card. In fact, I think I sent a copy of that to you guys. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and uh, uh, they waved me on through. And uh, I went into town, taxi driver. Uh, of course, the uh, Cambodian reel, the biggest one they had was a hundred reel note. It was green, it had one hundreds in each corner. I had it folded for they couldn't see the, the Sanskrit writing on the thing and uh, told him, I don't have any change. You go get change and come back. He saw that 100. He snapped that up and smoked off. I smoked <laughs> off in the other direction. <laughs> so what, So did you still technically own this plane? Like, what was the fate of this plane? The fate of that plane was the uh, next day I met in a, a little watering hall where all the Air America guys used to go to called Max's, Prince Panya, the royal family in Laos. He had been given two C-46s that Air America used to have and the operations building and he was hauling rice and stuff around in Laos. Well, he says, you come to Laos, bring your airplane and I'll Painted up and we'll fly passengers. I said, sure. And he says, and I'll make you chief pilot of the C 46 program. Okay. Did that and started flying rice up country into places we never would go to before because it was all enemy. And uh, into the 
uh, uh, blended jars. And there was Russians there too. They were also flying rice around. I'd make three trips to there too. And they didn't think that was right. They had a turbine airplane. I had an old C-46 built before World War II. <laughs> and I was hauling more than they were. But they were so uh, uh, top heavy as far as management and everything else. And then they started putting a little guy with a red star on his cap in the jump seat. And I knew the end was near here. So I forged some papers and operations with uh, Royal Air Lao uh, logo on it and forged Prince Panya's name on it. Got discount tickets as far as Anchorage, Alaska. That's all I could get the uh, 75% discount all I could afford. And uh, arrived a guard at the uh, uh, Mekong River and across the Mekong River and Holy down Bangkok in the train. <laughs> so you escaped from Cambodia and then you had to escape from Laos. That's right. That was a sad day. I know when I was off the airport and boarded Pan Am. And he cranked that thing up and taxied out and rolled down a runway off. Low cloud deck there we got on top of. Behind me was the only world I'd really been immersed in. Uh, a year in, or more when you're getting shot at and stuff is like a thousand to anybody else. Uh -huh. And it was the most helpless feeling I ever had. And my real world was behind me and I was hidden to Anchorage, Alaska. With what kind of resources, what kind of money did you have? What I had about 50 bucks. <laughs> Luckily, Roger, my friend from uh, Saigon, he was there. And I slept on his floor there for a while. I had a few Air America guys ended up in Anchorage or in, in Alaska. Yeah, it was our kind of flying. It wasn't FAA... Uh, by the numbers and like in the lower 48 where you had no leeway. Right. You could go ahead and take the airplane, and make it do what it's supposed to. Yeah. And so how, so you got to Alaska, you arrived at Alaska, uh, Roger was there. Um, and you talk about Roger quite a bit in your book uh, and he's quite a character. Oh yeah. Um, Sadly, he died at 49. He died when? When he's 49 years old. When he's 49, right. Um, so what did you do while you're in Alaska and how long did you stay there? I stayed there until summer came around and uh, I'd saved up $500 to buy a, a Ford Falcon <laughs> and uh, loaded everything in that and headed south. I was sick and tired of the cold. Mm -hmm. In the, the winter in Alaska, you get up in the dark, you go fly all day long in the dark, and you come home in the dark. This was not fun. It does strange things to your, your mind, actually. Sure. And in the summer, it's just the opposite. You got daylight, uh, you know, it's, it's broad daylight at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> in Anchorage, you know, the, 
the sun would just dip down below the Brooks Range a little bit and uh, back up, or that was in Fairbanks, and uh, no fun. And uh, there again, junk airplanes and the rest of that sort of stuff. I'm good at that. Yeah. And so where did you decide, you bought this Ford, uh, you said Ford uh, Falcon? Yeah. And where did you go to? Where, where, where were you, what was your direction? Port Charlotte, Florida. Why Port Charlotte, Florida? Because I had another friend who was down there working on a golf course. <laughs> Got down there and uh, ended up with a job with Diana Airways down in Georgetown, Guyana. Another old C-46. And there had been one down there before, but it crashed on takeoff and burned. And when I got down there, the tail sticking out of the jungle off the end of the runway had the same number as the number I had on that airplane. So something funny was going on there too. Yeah. <laughs> and so Guyana, you know, you, we, you mentioned Jim Jones earlier was, was, uh, was he around at that time? Was that a thing? He was building his, his empire down there in Jonestown. And uh, the people were coming in. And he was uh, uh, one of the good guys with the, uh, the government there because he was paying all these bills and all the rest of that sort of thing. And uh, uh, they couldn't see what the hell was going to happen with this compound when it finally sure. got off the ground and they ran out of money and everything else. And Kool-Aid was cheap. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but the interior of Guyana was really interesting. I'd go into Lethbridge and pick up uh, meat from a slaughterhouse there, raw sides of beef. But back years and years ago, John Chisholm came down through there and organized a cattle drive from Lethbridge to Georgetown. And I think they only lost 3,000 head in route through the jungle streams to crocodiles and all the rest of that sort of stuff. But there was still a lot of junk around there. The storekeeper there had uh, some old black powder six shooters and uh, the rest of that sort of thing. I should have bought one of those things. <laughs> yeah, uh, hindsight. Yeah. So, and how long did you work the job for doing that and why did you leave? And well, when they stopped sending paychecks which was a good that'll do it and uh caught a ride with a cuban crew and an electra back to miami oh and so you didn't even fly back then you you are uh, you didn't fly yourself the back. There. left the airplane there guys if i would have tried to go international with that thing uh, all the alarm bells would have went off and it was guyana registry okay but uh Got back up there and got a job with a construction company flying freight and there's a little single engine airplane and their multi-engine airplane. And uh, that again, had the kiss of death upon it when they got contracts to build I-75. And we'd start making trips down to uh, Cancun and they'd put the money in the little banks down there and they declared bankruptcy. So after after receiving these big government checks for building the the freeway, that's right. During this whole time, you never turned. I mean, you had experience on big birds, but you never turned to the commercial 
market. Did you feel as though that was sort of a fate worse than death or? No, not really, but I was too old at that point. Okay. That's the bad part. Uh, it would have been great and probably I could figure out how to be stable again instead of such a wild one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, it, those roots never did really a, appeal to me. Truth. Yeah. So this construction company goes, well, they kind of take this money and then they declare bankruptcy. And then what do you do? Well, a friend called me and said, would you like to go south? And that was a euphemism in that time for going down to Columbia to bring back weed. And I did. And is this, was this a friend from Air America? Uh, yes. He's now dead. And did you say yes immediately? I mean, did he have to lure you with the money? Was it just like, it sounds adventurous. I mean, what, what were you thinking when he called with that proposition? Uh, the money. The money and the thing. Yeah. Uh, and just out of curiosity, Neil, I was wondering if you saw the Tom Cruise movie about this particular subject and what you thought about it. Yeah, that was uh, Barry Seal. Uh-huh out of Mena, Arkansas. And uh, actually, it, it kind of scared you. And when he wanted to cooperate with the authorities, and when he did, they still shipped him out and uh, did not uphold their part of the bargain. Did, did you think that movie was like fairly accurate as to you know what it was like at the time running drugs yes. north-south? Yes. Yeah. But he paid the price for setting them up to setting up the cartels. Yeah. Yeah. They don't play games. He, he got assassinated down, was it in Miami? Uh, no, it was down in Louisiana somewhere at a halfway house, and perhaps New Orleans. Uh, let me see real quick. He was murdered. Uh, six Colombians connected to it. Uh, That's right. Shot to death in front of a Salvation Army Center. Um, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page here, but it doesn't actually say what city it was in for some reason. Um, oh, Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Okay. Yeah. Red stick. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> What was that like when you started flying? Were the, were the aircraft good? Were, were the working conditions good? I mean, what did you think? Oh, that'd be one run and that's it and you dump the bird. That's all there was to it. It had the allure of money and uh, something I did not have. And uh, it was kind of getting back to what we were doing before. Yeah. Taking it down to the dirt and doing it fast and quick. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, I, I mean, it obviously wasn't safe, but it no. wasn't safe in other ways too. You talk about uh, running out of gas if you got there, like or running out of fuel. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was another crew down there at one point in time that was basically uh, let off, right? Or led off. Yeah, they got killed. 
And, and why were they killed? Because they were down in uh, the uh, area of uh, Colombia that for them to have the Colombians take them a hundred and some miles up to uh, a major town where they could catch an airliner home would have been a great exposure for them and a lot of problems. So they solved their problem. And it was because they ran out of fuel or they didn't have enough to- No, they, they got excited. They were out of Texas. And uh, the dirt strip that we went into there had a hump in it. And the airplane they had was an Aero Commander and it wasn't sitting up high enough to see that there was more runway. So they thought they were at the end of the runway. So they tried to pull it off the ground and pull the gear up. Well, they went right back down the dirt, slid off the side. And uh, they came back up and they thought that uh, they would give them a ride up to there in Kia. Wow. And uh, I said, no, they're not going to do that. Why don't you climb in this DC-6 I got here and I'll take you back. And he said, well, then you... We don't know where you get in trouble when you come on back or how are you going to do that? I said, well, don't worry about that. Just worry about your butts. And they didn't want to. So they were going to go down to the wreck that they had, get their personal belongings out of it. And then the Colombians were going to help them. Well, they got down there and I could hear a couple pistol shots and and arose the flame from where they burned the wreckage. And then there was a time that you ran out of fuel there, right? Or in a, in a similar situation? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I did, an engine came apart on me. Okay. That was down near Cartagena. Okay. But the guys I was working with there were good and they walked us to us and got it out. That's, That's completely a, nuts. But it's always an iffy situation. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading in your book that you were talking about, I, was it coming back in, there was, was it a celebrity's house that you would use as a landmark or somebody's house that you would use a, as a landmark, the lights, so that you could go sort of visual from there? When you, uh, you want to stay offshore quite a ways out as far as Treasure Key, then turn due west, put it right down on top wave tops and bore right in. There was a good light at Jupiter Inlet and also yard lights from uh, uh, smoking a bandit. <laughs> and uh, go straight over his house, pull it on up, turn right on the airway and it looked like you came out of an airport there if they were painting you on radar. So you were using Burt Reynolds house as, as cover too. <laughs> oh, and then, and so then the radar signature would look like you came out of the airport. That's right. <laughs> it worked. If you're checking for a tail, you'd circle Disney World at one time. That's amazing. And the ground lights illuminate anybody that would be on your tail. And so, I mean, what ended up happening with this? I mean, did the good did the good times come to an end? Did the feds catch up with you? Yes, they did. Well, basically, when one of them went south, uh, the kingpin turned everybody in. And this this was out of was this out of Arkansas? Is that right? Where the state? No, police South Carolina. Oh, South Carolina, where the state police were involved, and yes, and and they were setting up, they were like blocking off landing That's strips right. for you, right? That's right. That'll raise a howl. <laughs> yeah. So the state police would come in, 
and, and block off a portion of the road so that you could land the drugs or pick right. or use that area as a landing strip. Mm-hmm. And that was the that was the organization or part of the organization. Right. We also landed on dirt strips and uh, fields and stuff like that too. Oh, so so the cops were in on it. Yes, not yeah. all, but some. But but a group of <laughs> got released. I know. Yeah, a group of them were in on it and would come in and sort of like secure the area. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the story as old as time. So yeah. Yeah. so. There was a report that came out, or you found out there was a warrant for you, correct? That's right. And then you de- you decided, right. screw that, I'm somebody else now. That's right. Okay. And how did that happen? Like, how did you develop an alias, get the IDs and, and things like that? To the, the South Carolina State Police. Well, license and everything else. Protect and serve, right? They were just serving them. Right. <laughs> and it wasn't all of them. But, yeah, uh, right. Totally got that. So now you have a, a a new ID, a new a new persona, and what did you do? I went to farming <laughs> in Arkansas, and eventually I got teased back into it, but it was a setup. Yeah. yeah. And, and how, when you went to farming, though, what kind of you, you had animals, right? You yes. Uh, and what types I, of animals did you have? I had pygmy goats. I had rias, which is a South American radite family, and emus, and a lot of other pheasants and things like that. I enjoyed that. That was fun. And, and everybody, like, you just became a new person. That's who everybody knew you as. Uh, you were married at the time, and even your, your wife started calling you that name. With That's everybody. right. And, um, and how long did you do that for? Uh, about three years. And so then what happened? I, I, you were telling Jack that you went back into it. Yeah, one of the guys from South Carolina got a hold of me. I don't know how he found where I was, but wanted me to make a run south. And he said he had an airplane. And he, no, he wasn't. He was just setting me up. And He's he fed. His own butt clear. Yeah. And so were you picked up right away? I mean, did they come to your farm? Did they? Yes. Did they... Yeah, they, they, they caught me down at the front gate. They had about 10 guys. <laughs> and what were you thinking at that point? Were you like, okay, this like life in, life in prison, like this is it or? No, there again, it's another game, truthfully. Uh, the county and state prisons are not all that bright and shiny. But if you do have a little sense, you can work the system. In uh, the federal system, uh, I was uh, actually uh, a quality control supervisor in their furniture factory. <laughs> and, uh, that works. So I have a relatively good life. So, so you, you took a plea deal? <clears throat> no. No. When, when you were, during the whole trial system, did your time with Air America come up at all? Did they recognize you for your service? No, they didn't. Nobody ever has. And uh, that's the one thing that uh, our site, uh, the Air America Historical Social Club, we're fighting to get recognition. And, you know, I'm not looking for money, but I'd sure. like to see the guys that died at least acknowledged. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, but they're not. What would that look boy. like? Weird. Like if it, like what what would that look like for you to get acknowledged for them to get acknowledged? Oh, nothing but a, a America Day. I'm not looking for a retirement thing and the rest of that. Uh, between military and Air America time, yeah, I'd qualify for retirement of some sort, but uh, they didn't do that. Uh, we were throwaways and they had uh, uh, credible deniability and what we were and where we were and everything sure. else. Well, we were violating the Geneva Accords in Laos uh, very badly by carrying munitions in and supporting uh, indigenous troops. And that is not uh, what the Geneva Accords said, although the Russians and everybody else was doing it too. Right. <laughs> North Vietnamese and Red Chinese and the whole enchilada. But we want to keep the white hats. And they ain't happening. Yeah. And that's why they've kind of and tried to- the world to doesn't know it that way anyway. That's why they've tried to bury a part of your history, you feel like? That's right. No, all they wanted, if they just have an Air America Day, you know, they've got it for every other uh, thing, uh, you know, the National Candy Day and whatever else they have on the calendar. Yeah, you're not asking for a federal holiday. You're asking for a day of recognition. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like there should you guys should have a statue in Washington D.C. or something like that. You know, uh, I, I don't know at the Vietnam <laughs> Memorial or, or elsewhere or or in front of the the CIA headquarters at Langley. I have no idea, but I mean, it's one of those things. There should be something that you can go visit. Well, a statue is fine, and I, I think that the, the memorial here in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, is a uh, about the most we can expect. It was done by the Hmong people. Who we supported and they had enough honor to do that for us mm -hmm. uh, and that i respect tremendously uh Vu yang and uh, all the, the Hmong over there that every memorial day they've had me in their parade uh, and that, that's that's great and it's quite an honor and i've been a speaker at their uh, events too so where are where are you at today neil tell us a little bit about your book and how that came about Okay, uh, the book came about over many years of writing this thing. And uh, it was a kind of labor. And I've been a speaker at uh, Oshkosh and the EAA air show here, which is the largest in the world for five years up until this year, of course. But uh, one day in the audience, there was a, a lady uh, that used to be with the Chicago Tribune. And uh, after I gave my spiel, uh, she says, let me buy you a beer. And I said, okay, I'm easy. And uh, we went to a, a local hotel and we sat down and had a beer and talked about uh, everything. And I said, well, you, you need, really need to write a book. And I said, well, I really kind of have. I've got about 400 pages of uh, typed uh, manuscript and, uh, and she's ran in, into these things before and uh, uh, Regrettingly, she said, well, send it to me and I'll take a look at it. Well, it wasn't too long after that, she, I got a call and she says, oh no, you, you've got to have this uh, uh, mainstream, we've got to get an agent. And she cleaned up some of the iffy stuff and uh, uh, added a, a good uh, prologue to the thing. 
And uh, it's gone onward and upward from that point. We found an agent and the agent found a publisher and, and now it's gonna get further legs, I think. But we'll see. Uh, we have had uh, quite a, a ride with this thing and uh, she's done a magnificent job on this thing. And the only thing additional in here that I wanted was a list of all the guys that died. And I've got that right in the back. And uh, their names are all there and dates. It, it definitely deserves to be known. It, because it, even during this interview, I think one of like a couple of things that, that I haven't really been able to get across is that this is a very, this isn't just times and dates and places, but this is a very personal account about the people that you were with, their, their idiosyncrasies, uh, the, the, the internal politics. Like even when you um, crash or got shot down, the people who were betting against you and the people who were betting for you and the people betting against you because they wanted your job. And, That's and, yeah. And it was nothing personal. No, they, they just wanted to move up in the ranks. And that happens in every industry, whether it's auto industry or airline or anything else. When a senior guy dies or retires, everybody steps up. Uh, right. You know, and, and, and not just the people in Air America, but you know the your kickers. Uh, Sam, uh, I'm not going to say Sampa, right? And and Boomer. and yeah, and and how precious they were as human beings, and were, you know, and and, and their personalities. I really enjoyed those guys, uh, particularly the tie kickers. They had respect, and I showed them respect. Right. The time I give them. Uh, the traditional why, and uh, uh, they also showered me with many Buddhist amulet, amulets and uh, and things, and uh, it was great. You had mutual respect. And, and you know, those were like we didn't talk about your Buddha pen. Can you tell us a little bit about your Buddha pen and and your necklace? Uh, the only thing I have left is the Buddha pen, and that I gave to Luan Groskep, my co-author. And she wears it around her neck. And but but that has and and I'm sure she understands how precious that was to you because that has such history in it and it has such history in your book. Mm -hmm. Um that you know they would give you these gifts, you know, and they would give you these things, and then they would always make sure that you were wearing them. That's right. Uh, you know, because they were blessings essentially. That's right. Uh that's common things in many uh, uh religious followings and uh, uh, whether it's a cross hanging, uh, hanging from your rear view mirror or things like that, or uh, uh, St. Christopher's uh, uh, thing on the dash. Yeah, there I am when I was in what? Boy, I was skinny and I was white. <laughs> <laughs> Were you somewhat of a celebrity amongst the locals because you're a Caucasian in a what? That's right. Yes, I was. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, it was a learning curve, and uh, I'm glad I did it. it uh, and the Watt forms uh, a big part of the uh, community there. 
children that are orphans are taken into the Watt and they become mm -hmm. novices and uh, they're fed and they're clothed and they're, they have a place to uh, live. Uh, that's an old C-46. That is a Chinese registry, Bravo uh, 858. Flown that many times. Good bird. So weird. How long did you spend in, in jail then? It was a federal prison, correct? Yes. And how long, how long did you spend there? Four years. Four years. Mm -hmm. And even that was an interesting time, right? Because you. It was because you learn uh, if you've got any sort of abilities whatsoever, you're not looking for Mensa candidates there. I could type, I could do things like that. Uh, and uh, I learned the legal system myself where I could write uh, uh, pleas and the rest of that for guys. And uh, that gets you a notch up the ladder. And it, it was good. And you, you shared, I mean, I, you were there at the same time there was a very interesting personality who was possibly involved in the Kennedy assassination, right? That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, huh? Yeah, you guys can read the book for that. We've already we've already spilled too many secrets. <laughs> um, and so, some of the names across this interview, I mean, good Lord, we went from Jimmy Hoffa to Tony Poe to uh, Mobatu Sesaseko, uh, Eugene Hoffenfoss. Uh, this, is, this has been nuts. <laughs> Jim Jones. Uh, Jim Jones, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. It, it's truly now. You said that you know uh, you there hasn't been any recognition. How has the CIA has the CIA given you any sort of outreach or formal recognition? Have they ever invited you to Langley at all? No, but uh, they did give us. Uh, uh, oh gosh, a certificate of commemoration. And, but uh, that was during uh, George Tennant's regime. And I think he got in trouble over that. And he also had a coin made that was given to us with all the uh, Langley stuff on it and the rest of that. Yeah. America emblem on one side. But uh, I can understand the politics and the problems they have on that and their reluctance to admit that they were involved uh, in uh, uh, violating Geneva Accords and everything else. And, uh, but it, it's, you know, come on, it's been over 50 years for guys. Yeah, I mean, hasn't it all been declassified by now, just, just yes. by the nature of the classification laws? That's right. I, if it wasn't, I'd be in jail right now. <laughs> right, yeah. Guys, uh, no, Neil, this has been really incredible. And uh, if anyone wants to go and pick up Neil's book, Flight, there's a link down in the description. You can just go click on that and it'll, and there's the book right there. And like, Neil, is this thing like available as an audio book, Kindle, paperback? It's available on Kindle and Amazon and also paperback on Amazon. I'm currently uh, doing the audio version right now. Awesome. Uh, I, I read it on Kindle, guys. I mean, it, it's it's definitely worth. It, it is highly, highly, highly recommended. It's um, like I said, we've really just kind of brushed over the broad strokes here, um, and even 
you know what's very interesting is not only about the personal tales, the the interpersonal stories, the personalities, the the, the politics and the situations, but your love of flight, your your love of flight truly comes through too. Just the way you talk about flying and uh, you talk about you know your birds, your airplanes. Um, I mean, I had to look a lot of stuff up in, in some of the. Well, I didn't have to, but I wanted to because I really wanted to feel. You know, I didn't know what the mechanical terms were and I wanted to know what you were talking about. And it just really comes through that you are a person who is like one with your airplane. Yes, well, I've flown over 130 different single engine airplanes and 25 different multi-engine airplanes. But back in those days, you didn't have to go through all the crap of getting checked out on each one. You got in and you flew the damn thing. And, uh, <laughs> It's, it's good basic common sense if you know airplanes. Uh, now a poor kid can't do that anymore. Uh, it's a real shame. Yeah, yeah. It, but it, it was dangerous, yes, I gotta say that much. Well, and that's something else we didn't really talk about is some of the airfields and landing conditions, you guys, I mean, some of them were strips on a plateau that-, that in a cloud Yeah you know that a lot of the deaths were due to guys trying to hit an airstrip in a cloud bank because you know so and yeah i mean it was amazing truly amazing yeah hitting one of those things was called a cumulo granite <laughs> <laughs> well guys um just to you know, wrap things up here, I don't know if you guys have any final thoughts, but I got to give the obligatory uh, call to action to everybody that, you know, um, thank you, uh, everyone who joined us live tonight. Uh, it was really awesome. Um, please make sure you subscribe to our channel if you haven't already and hit the thumbs up button. Uh, you know, share the video with your pals, leave us some comments down below. All that kind of stuff kind of helps us bump up in the algorithms. And uh, there's also a link to our Patreon down below if uh, you're interested in supporting the stream and you'd like to have access to all the bonus segments we do with our guests, um, you can jump in. It's, it starts at $1 a month, so it's super easy to, to get into. Yeah, we're, do you know what bonus segment we're gonna do for this tonight? Uh, um, do we know yet? Because uh, there's, there's some good stuff out there that we haven't talked about, so. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right, join us on Patreon, guys. Uh, it'll be out. Every Wednesday, right, is when the bonus content yeah. comes up. Mm -hmm. So it'll yeah. be out Wednesday. And just a tease for uh, next Friday. Next Friday, we will be live with our guest, another pilot, Dan Hampton, who is an F-16 pilot. Uh, he's authored a handful of books. He wrote a, a memoir about his time as an F-16 pilot. He wrote a, a, a great novel called The Mercenary that I, re I read. And uh, he has a new book about uh, Operation, Operation Vengeance that I really don't know anything about, but it's a World War II uh, historical book. Um, so we'll have Dan on next week to speak with him. It'll be a great follow on to this uh, this episode, Neil. I mean, this has been amazing, man. Thanks so much for, for joining us tonight. You've been blowing my mind. <laughs> and you want right, to guys. hang on for uh, afterwards? Yep. Uh, so good night, everyone. And uh, I'll see ready. you again on Friday. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.